Hey, welcome to Win the Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost, and this is episode number 50 of the podcast. So congratulations to me, and uh, thanks to you for being people who listen sometimes. And it's always nice to know that I'm not alone in this, uh, and that I'm not just screaming into the void. And, you know, we are living kind of in a bit of a void at the moment in... Auckland lockdown life as it continues on, the months roll by and we're hitting this different kind of phase of the journey and currently facing some uncertainties about how things are going to play out from here and I think it's probably if you live overseas, if you live somewhere like the US or the UK, you've had to deal with this much earlier than us. Uh, we're, we're a bit late to the game here, which I'm actually quite happy about because hopefully it means we've learned some things and got some vaccines out and stuff like that. But you know, we're starting to hit the possibilities of some of those more difficult um, experiences and conversations that, that you all have been facing elsewhere for a long time now. And we're not sure yet what it's exactly it's going to look like and um, what the reality is going to be as it unfolds, but things are changing and, you know, if you're from somewhere else in the world, you might think, yeah, <laughs> um, what have you been doing all this time? But we've been in New Zealand living our best lives uh, and going to concerts and going to the beach. Uh, and so this is kind of new for us. So here I am still mostly stuck at home and we're all still trying to protect uh, our most vulnerable, I think, from this from this pandemic and um, and trying to figure out how to live, I think, in this moment too. That's, that's something that my partner and I have been talking about in recent days and weeks is as this thing kind of drags on is, oh, Initially, it's like, how can we just get through the next week or two and survive? But now it's like, how do we actually live inhabiting the moment that we find ourselves in without just sort of just watching our lives tick by? And those, those are hard and difficult questions to, to deal with. So if you're feeling that way too, I'm with you. Uh, we're kind of in it together, aren't we? Even as we're in it alone. In the podcast at the moment, we're talking through uh, really some of the overarching themes and perhaps it's appropriate as we hit the milestone of 50 episodes to be looking back at some of the themes that I am seeing emerge from the variety of conversations and topics that we've explored over the last two or three years in, in, in the Shift um, podcast. And in particular, some of the themes that have emerged from those different conversations in relation to uh, really some of the big overarching problems I see in contemporary Western Christianity in particular but also some of the ongoing potential and possibilities that make me still think that, <laughs> funnily enough, spirituality and faith still might have something meaningful to offer us and the world. Uh, not in terms of some kind of get-out-of-hell free card, but something meaningful in the here and now. And in the last episode, I talked a bit about the obsession with growth, both both in contemporary Western society and also in the church. And, you know, I know that we could we could go hashtag not all churches if we wanted to. But I don't think that's a particularly productive thing to do, right? We've got to be able to name problems without always having to give the caveats of, yeah, except for these people over here. And I think this is a widespread problem, this this obsession with kind of growth and the fusion of Christianity with capitalism. You know, because this trend toward growth-based corporate-style business churches, really, you know, they are becoming the primary influences of the, of the evangelical, Pentecostal, charismatic world, I think, uh, the Protestant world in many respects. And that's an influence that's spreading not just to those large kind of obvious mega churches, but many of the smaller churches are feeling the pressure to conform to that way of being and they're going off to conferences and learning about how to turn their nice little communities into, into little corporate structures. 
And, you know, if that trend continues, I think um, it's going to be increasingly one of the dominant ways of thinking about what a church should be and about what drives and shapes church communities and beliefs and ways of treating people. And, and I, think that's a, I think that's a problem and something that somewhere somebody needs to be talking about and offering instead some alternative pathways forward. Um, otherwise, what, we, what we're doing in the end is, is leaning into, I think, the very harm that that kind of obsession with growth ultimately does, especially to people on the margins. And so uh, instead, last time I suggested that authenticity is something that Christian faith at its best can actually help us toward because authenticity is grounded in honesty and vulnerability. It's not efficient. It usually requires us to give up our obsession with growth and efficiency and corporate goals and being cool uh, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I think there are resources within the faith tradition that can help us to cultivate that kind of sense of authenticity. Uh, and in this episode, I want to unpack a related kind of conversation, and that's to do with power, which is really where we started the whole In The Shift journey uh, all those 50 episodes ago was in conversations about power. So I want to return a little bit to that here, and in particular with the kind of narcissistic shape of that power in many of our institutions, and in particular our religious institutions. And there's a couple of things I want to say before we jump in. Uh, Firstly, sometimes it might feel, and especially if you're someone who's still very much within the kind of church system and you feel comfortable with that, and in a particular kind of... Now, you know, I am someone who is still part of a faith community. In fact, surprisingly, find myself helping to lead one. Um, and, And so I don't sort of do this from totally outside the system in that respect. Um, but I think sometimes to people who are, you know, who are kind of in the thing and still uh, all in on that and and struggle to accept any of the challenging conversations, it can seem like, and I know this because this is how I used to feel when I was younger, that people are just wanting an excuse to kind of dump on the church. Um, oh, look at those people. They're just enjoying telling all their sad stories <laughs> or criticizing, you know, being negative at Nellie's, being cynical. I don't know. But my experience, actually, now that I am one of those people, <laughs> uh, is that most most of us don't actually particularly enjoy having hard or traumatic stories related to the church. We don't enjoy having to pull apart a system that we trusted in. We're not doing it for kicks. And I think that's an important point to make because they're one of the kind of easy, quick defences that church institutions can give when hard questions come along is, oh, yeah, well, it's, of course it's easier to take pot shots at something, but it's much harder to build something. Well, we know that. We we either have been or still are trying to build something. But these questions are important. These stories are important and they matter and they must be taken seriously, I think. The other thing I want to say comes in relation to a little bit of the feedback that came in on the socials um, after the last episode, uh, which is to say that when I and, and others offer these kind of critiques, it doesn't mean that we're saying every person within these environments and these organisations and church communities are terrible people or bad people with bad intentions. And in fact, many good things do happen within these communities. Absolutely. I experienced some of those good things myself. Uh, But we do have to ask the question of how those communities are connected to and embodying wider systems and structures that are still problematic. And so critique doesn't wipe out or negate the good things that are happening. But neither does the good eliminate the need for that critique. And, you know, there's a, there's a saying in some of the, you know, work around social justice and intersectionality and other stuff like that, which is to, related to impact over intention, you know. It doesn't, to some degree, like what you intend is one thing. And, and it's, you know, it's a helpful thing to ask where are our intentions coming from. 
But in concrete terms, we've also got to ask, what is the actual real impact of what we're doing, regardless of what we intended by it? And and those are harder conversations to have sometimes because they're a bit more confronting because we can be like, but I didn't mean for that to have that impact on that person. And yet that's the impact that it had. And especially so when systems kind of gather the, their own kind of perpetual motion, their own unstoppable momentum that has that kind of impact. And so if I think there's anything worth saving about Christian faith and communities and institutions and churches, we have to be able to hear, to accept, to listen to the very real suffering that has been caused by those institutions. And there are all sorts of ways in which that takes shape, you know, the, the, I guess the, the big kind of glaring ones, the patriarchy, the racism, the homophobia, and the way in which they've caused suffering. And, and there's lots of other kind of things that we've explored too, um, you know, even in the last episode. And we can't just get all out, out of all, all of that by saying, yeah, yeah, but what about all the good things we've done? Uh, we can't use the ends to justify the means. You know, yes, sure, there are good things happening in many places. But you don't, we don't get to be like, hey, it doesn't matter that we've been racist because we also helped some poor people one time or two times. You know, if the church really is what it's trying to be, then this kind of self-defense can't really be the path forward, I think. So I want to talk a bit about that here in this episode. Why are we so quick to defend ourselves, so slow to listen? Why do we prioritize the reputation of the church and the powerful people that run it over and above the people who might actually be the victims and sufferers of that system? And so in this episode, I want to talk about narcissism for a little bit, and not in a really sort of a clinical diagnosis kind of way, but just an overall sense of what it looks like at an institutional level more broadly when narcissism kind of shapes the culture. And then at a Christian church level more specifically, and then overlaying with that how Christian theology often encourages and exaggerates that narcissism in some particularly unhealthy ways. And then, of course, I want to talk about an alternative. I want to talk about some possibilities and potentials. So... This is episode 50 of In The Shift. Let's get into it. Okay, so I want to begin with a story. And it's a story from many years ago when I was teaching at a Bible college. And I had been processing, this was, this was very early in my years of what we might now call a deconstruction. And I was starting, I'd started some study in theology, and I was starting to reflect upon some of the motivations, some of the beliefs that were driving much of what I saw around me. And so I started writing a book. Now, it's not a book I ever finished, uh, but it was a book that I titled There Is No Ladder. And it was all about how I saw at that time the story of Jesus and Christian faith as fundamentally being about the pulling apart of hierarchies and status uh, rather than the entrenching of certain forms of hierarchy and status. And so There Is No Ladder was, <clears throat> was really an attempt for me to try and work out my thoughts on that. And I used to like talking to my students about this. And so I would, I would go off on long tangents from the uh, curriculum where I would talk to them about my ideas related to this concept of there being no ladder. And in particular, that within Christian faith, you know, we should be, uh, we should be pulling apart those systems of status and hierarchy. And uh, 
One week, we had uh, scheduled a visiting itinerant um, person, minister, preacher, who was uh, coming out to that Bible college to share with the students for a day. And so we sent one of our interns to go and pick up said preacher from their hotel, a pretty nice hotel in the city. When the intern arrived at the hotel, they waited outside uh, for a while and, and the preacher did not emerge. So eventually they went to the desk and they asked and uh, it turned out that they said, we have no one staying here by that name. So uh, after a number of sort of phone calls from that in turn to, to us to, and from us to somebody else and so on, we ended up realising and finding out that the preacher had been moved uh, to a much uh, well, to a nicer hotel, from, from the nice hotel to the nicest hotel. Uh, and <laughs> it turns out that they had been unhappy with the hotel that they'd been placed in and had run whatever organize, they had run whatever organization had organized to bring them into the city uh, and, and got them to upgrade their hotel experience while they were here. So my, uh, so, so this intern who, was, who then went across to the town to this other hotel to pick up this preacher, I picked them up. And on the way to bring them out to the Bible college where I taught, started telling this preacher all about uh, there is no ladder. And, uh, which is sort of funny thinking back. Uh, and, and funnily enough, according to the intern, this is, this is what the preacher said. They said, there is a ladder and I'm right near the top of it. Um, and that story always struck me as being very worrying. <laughs> I mean, there's kind of a humor to it, but it's kind of a terrifying humor, right? Because this is the kind of person who was traveling around the world, uh, supposedly representing um, Jesus. I don't know. The good news, whatever they were representing. Um, and, and there's just such a narcissistic shape to that kind of mentality and to that kind of story. And so I want to talk a bit about that, and not really about individuals as much as I want to talk about uh, institutions. And, you know, there's, there's obviously a degree to which narcissism is like a clinical disorder, and there's mental health work done around narcissism as, as, a, as a clinical disorder. And I don't necessarily want to dive deep into that world, other than just to say, here's kind of a broad sense of the kinds of things it involves. It involves a heightened sense of self-importance, a belief that the person is special, uh, someone who tends to take advantage for others for their own ends, a lack of empathy for others, a needing of admiration, someone who doesn't handle criticism at all well, and so on. So these are the kind of features of of narcissism in a general sense. And like I say, I don't want to dive into the detail on sort of what happens when a person becomes narcissistic and what gives rise to that and stuff, but really to use this as a as a broader way of thinking about what happens in our communities and institutions all the time. And I don't just mean in churches. I mean in our widespread institutions, organizations, even just families, like from the small to the large. And, and you know, one of the things that so often happens in, in these institutions is not just that a particular leader is narcissistic, um, although that is often the case, but that institutions and organizations themselves start to exhibit these kinds of um, indicators, you know, self-importance, the need for admiration, ad admiration, the lack of empathy for others, especially a lack of empathy for those who are suffering, 
has been contributed to or directly caused by that institution or by those people who are seen to be representative of or important to that institution. And so, as I say, this happens at all levels of community and society. It happens in businesses. It ha- you know, um, think about a, a family who closes ranks. You know, I, sort of weirdly, you watch it happen, closes ranks around an abuser instead of supporting the victim. And it's tragic to watch it unfold. But it happens all the time because of what it would mean to side with the victim in terms of the reputation of the family, the version of events that they have come to believe about themselves and their family, the story and script that they have bought into. It's much easier to essentially silence the sufferer than it is to face up to the truth of what that might mean, you know. And so that does, that that finds its way into our institutions and organisations and, you know, one of the, the most obvious um, confrontations to that narcissism in, in recent years has been the Me Too movement, which has looked at the way in which um, patriarchy and and men and abusive men have used the narcissism of institutions essentially as a as a cover and as a means to propagate and continue their abuse of of women. And and one of the reasons why this has been able to happen is because those institutions gather around and protect that the institution serves primarily to protect itself in the first instance. And ultimately that means protecting whatever figureheads or important people represent that institution or, or who are critical to its success. And so again, victims and sufferers are silenced or pushed to the edge or not believed or whatever. And uh, something like the Me Too movement has been this incredibly important corrective to that to that um, toxic masculine narcissism that we've seen within many organisations around the world. Um, and this does happen, you know, to to churches in particular as well, and it happens to churches in in, in very sort of specific kinds of ways, I guess. Uh, one of the things that um, sociologists of religion talk about is the is the transition that churches uh, make, uh, often from kind of a marginal. What there, there's a there's a, a typology called church sect type, typology, uh, coming from sociologists of religion in the twentieth century, Max Weber, uh, Trolsch, and, and a number of others where they talk about how many church movements um, start on the margins, start as a disruptive force. So you kind of have the entrenched institutions at the centre, you have the um, the big um, beasts, all right, the big machines that we were talking about last time in the last episode. Uh, and then you have at the margins these disruptive movements kind of pop up. And so, uh, you know, I came from the Pentecostal tradition. uh, And in the early years of Pentecostalism, it was very much one of those marginal kind of disruptive movements. It was emerging amongst people of colour and and, and marginalised people outside of the kind of dominant white conservative Protestant discourse. Um, And so in that sense, it was very uh, problematic to to the centre. It was problematic to the conservative institutions that had all the power. and yet what uh, what the sociologists of religion observe is how often and how usually what happens is that marginal disruptive movement, if it survives over time, it goes through a process they call routinization, which is essentially where the kind of the, the, the things on that are disruptive and on the edge become routinized within the life of that organization, that community, that movement. Uh, and then they become uh, they become a part of the rituals. 
and then they become something to conserve and to protect. And over time, you move from marginal disruptive kind of protest movement to being another one of those institutions at the centre who's seeking to conserve their own power and so on. And we see this play out over and over and over again. You can actually see that same kind of mentality happen in the business world. You get a, you get a business that emerges on the edge and with some disruptive uh, practice or technology and then over time has to kind of preserve the gains that it's made. And so you end up with something that was a marginal protest movement becoming a very conservative force as it seeks, you know, you, you end up having to put most of your energy into, into keeping the system going. There's now, maybe there's too much to lose now. You know, when you start out on the edges, you've got nothing to lose and you don't have any power. And then uh, as, as that turns out to be a success, <laughs> as people are drawn to that, then suddenly you gather, you know, income and property and position and title and power and now there's too much to lose and so now you have to protect that. And so this happens a lot. And so something like, again, to take as an example, you know, Christianity is obviously a big example of this. First century, marginal, subversive, underground movement that within a few centuries becomes the centre of empire and power and control in the world. Uh, Pentecostalism, again, the, the the tradition that I came from starts out as marginal, disruptive, quite odd, um, certainly uncool movement. And then, you know, now we have sort of the mega, the mega church, mega systems um, that have kind of routinized and packaged and corporatized uh, many of the elements of that kind of what started out as quite marginal and disruptive Pentecostal um, spirituality. And so... Um, and so this is something that we observe a lot. And then there's just too much on the line. There's too much to lose. Now, what happens when we dovetail that then with Christian theology? Well, uh, you end up with something like, you know, some of the, some of the theology of the church has been um, the church essentially, you know, if you, think about, if you think about Christianity as the kind of the answer, if, if Christian faith is the answer the world needs, especially if it's the answer that people need to get them from an eternity in hell into an eternity in heaven, like that's a, that's a, that feels like a pretty big thing. So you've got the answer that the world needs, you've got the truth that the world needs, um, you know, and that language of church and world for me when I was younger, especially in my 20s perhaps, was, was really, you know, big but, but very binary. It was the church and the world. The church was a light place and the world was a dark place. The church had the answers and the world was lost. Um, you know, that kind of mentality uh, feeds the narcissistic shape of the institution because not only do you just have the natural um, sociological um, sort of conservation of power going on within those institutions and organisations, you're layering on top of that a spiritual and theological kind of narcissism that keeps centering the role of this church in the salvation of the entire world. So the church becomes the hope of the world. The church has the answer that the world needs. Church leaders then are those who are gifted and called and anointed by God to lead that institution. And this institution that's going to be instrumental in the salvation of people's eternal souls. Um, you know, and in that sense then, the work of the church becomes so vital that it cannot be disrupted. We can't risk damaging it. We can't risk damaging the reputation of that church. We can't risk damaging the reputation of those leaders. And so, uh, and so what happens time and time and time again because of two things, I think at least. One, the narcissistic shape of social institutions more generally. And two, the narcissistic shape of Christian theology that layers on top of that institute social um, construction um, 
you end up with with churches acting in ways that are deeply harmful. And then, to make matters worse, externalizing and pushing away any blame for that onto those people who are suffering. And so if you think about, you know, something like the scandal within the Catholic Church that's been uncovered over the last decades, right? And now we know that, uh, and so this is not just like a Pentecostal megachurch problem, right? This is something that happens when power dynamics are out of whack and when people are invested in certain institutions and certain individuals representing something good and we're so invested in that good representation that we don't have any accountability or that we won't believe um, stories that counter that goodness that we're seeking to portray. Or when we do encounter stories, we need to hide those stories so as not to damage the reputation. And so you have cases of Catholic priests committing, you know, tragic abuse against young people and kids. And instead of police being brought in and prosecutions being made, those priests are just moved away to another area to do it again. Um, You know, you've got, in recent years, sort of famous, um, you know, even just in the last couple of years, a a famous um, apologetics teacher, Ravi Zacharias, who for many people was very instrumental in helping them think through their faith at certain times in their lives. And what we find out is, in fact, after he passed away, that there was all of this... um, abuse within his ministry and um, I won't go into all the details of it. But those stories were coming to light when he was still around. They just weren't believed because no one wanted to believe them because no one wants to believe that this person who we've invested so much in and, and who represents the church and who represents salvation and who represents the answers, we don't want that person to fall and so instead we silence the suffering, we push away the marginalised and we and we either don't believe them. Or on one level, often we do believe them, but we try to tell ourselves we don't believe them, which makes us even more violent, really, in our protestations. Uh, you know, and, you, and you're seeing this, um, there's, there's, a, there's a social media page called Do Better Church, and it collects, it's on Instagram, it collects anonymous stories from people and their experiences within church life all sorts of a range of experiences of suffering and trauma at the hands of people, at the hands of the church and church institutions. And, you know, th- what that tells us is that is that this is widespread. It tells us that this is happening all of the time. And it, and it doesn't mean, like I said at the very beginning of this episode, it doesn't mean that every person is seeking out to do terrible things. It's often, you know, there's not very many people in the world who get up in the morning and think, how can I make people suffer today? And there's certainly not many people, I don't think, actually, within churches who are getting up in the morning and thinking like that. <laughs> um, but the narcissistic shape of those institutions and the narcissistic shape of their theology means that we're just, we, we don't want to hear those stories of suffering. We, don't, we want to believe that we're better than that because so much is invested in us being better than that. And so the response is to externalise the problem. So the complainant has a heart issue. The complainant 
has obviously been losing faith. The, com- the complainant should have taken it to their leaders and processed it through the proper channels, uh, regardless of whether or not they would have been listened to. The complainant should have processed this quietly and politely and without bringing the church into disrepute because, uh, again, we don't want to say any of this loudly because of what damage that might do to the reputation of the church and therefore to God's kingdom and therefore to the possibility of people's eternal souls being saved. So just keep quiet and go quietly into the night. And, um, you know, this is toxic. There's kind of no other way to say it. And and because the theology of the church tells people that their, their mission is supreme, it, it feeds this narcissistic energy, it does. And this is especially a problem then when people with tendencies towards this kind of behavior anyway are often drawn toward the leadership positions within these kinds of institutions. And so you get this cumulative impact of all of these factors. And I do think we just, look, we have to talk about this. There's, and, and often, you know, as we talked about last week when we talked about churches, business and, and, and all of that kind of stuff, um, you know, people are, are concerned to say anything out loud because it might damage their chances within the church world. Uh, and I just, I just think the system itself has become dysfunctional in that sense. And not just dysfunctional, outright harmful. And so what's the alternative to this? Hmm. Well, I guess it's not a binary thing, you know. Uh, it's not like, oh yeah, there's bad churches and good ones or anything like that. Uh, that's, I don't think that helps us trying to think through it in that sense. And one of the things you'll hear people say sometimes is, well, there's no perfect church. Stop looking for the perfect church. Well, and of course that's true. Of course there's no perfect church. And Being a part of a community, a family, having friends, <laughs> you know, let alone being in a larger community, will always involve some kind of personality clash or mix-ups or mistakes or hurt or offence. Of course, these things will occur in a community. But this kind of phrase, there's no such thing as the perfect church, is, is often used as a cover for, for not having to confront with or deal with the actual serious problems that might be present. And so, to, to me and to my mind, the alternative to this is to consider the way in which the shape of the Christian story is oriented toward the victim, toward the scapegoat, toward the underside, toward the powerless, toward the suffering. And this is something I've talked about many times before on this podcast, but I will keep talking about probably until the day I die. Um, The story of the Bible is is just, look, it's largely written by losers. (laughs) And this really matters like so much. It's written by people who have suffered and who are suffering. And, And then even when, you know, and there are certainly, there's, there's significant parts of the of the scriptures that contain ego and patriarchy in particular. And yet, I think the overall shape of the story and the trajectory of the story toward the victim, toward the suffering, toward the undersized, should actually cause us, and does, if we read it well, cause us to challenge the Bible itself at times and confront it when it contains abusive or harmful things, you know. So when we confront those texts that exclude the disabled, when we confront those texts that entrench patriarchy, or kind of accept slavery. You know, the the shape of the gospel story should actually cause us to confront those parts of that story that themselves don't measure up to the overall theme, the overall trajectory. If we think about, you know, the Old Testament is the story of a suffering people, of Israel. If we think about the New Testament, the story of Jesus is a martyr who dies, who's executed, uh, partly just due to his commitment to to a path of nonviolence and radical inclusion and love. You know, Paul, who 
who is a complicated individual and who sometimes I feel like, oh man, that's so great, Paul. And sometimes I think, oh, I don't get you at all. You seem like a very difficult character. Um, but, you know, even even he ends up in prison and executed. And so in all of these cases, I think what this should tell us is that victims stand at the very center of the Christian gospel. Not the powerful, not the emperor, not the CEO, not the megachurch pastor, not the itinerant preacher. Victims and the suffering stand at the very, very center of the Christian gospel. And so if churches, I think, want to embody a different way of being in the world, want to embody a Jesus-shaped or gospel-shaped way of being in the world, whatever language we want to wrap around that, then I think the voices of those who are victims need to be some of the primary voices in shaping these communities. And in fact, that then becomes something that Christian faith and church communities can offer in the world. What we're offering, if, if we want to go down this path, is not um, the miracle answer to all of your problems. It's not salvation of your soul so that you won't burn forever and therefore you should just do whatever we say. Perhaps what we can offer is, is, an, is, is ongoing attempts to center those who are suffering, to center the victims, to, um, to reject that temptation as much as possible to conserve and protect our institution at the expense of people. And in this sense then, I think Christianity has this kind of um, inbuilt disruption mechanism within it, or it should do, so that whenever it gets too powerful, whenever it gets uh, too conservative in the sense of trying to conserve the gains that it's made, there should be something within Christian faith which subverts that and undoes it and disrupts it and pulls it apart so that it can be reformed again around those who are suffering. And so as hard as it might be and as complicated as it might be and as inefficient and non-growth oriented as it might be, I think if there's going to be any kind of path forward for churches in the 21st century that is meaningful, I think they have to be church communities that are deeply sensitive to the suffering voices, which means that these big critiques and questions and stories of people's you know, experiences of hurt, trauma and marginalization within the church, these are not stories to tear down the church. They are stories around which to center the church. And that becomes a different way of thinking about what it even means to be a church community. So uh, we're going to continue exploring problems and possibilities over the coming episodes. So it's a little bit of a wild ride. Join us on the socials, on the Insta, Facebook situations. Uh, there's, some, there's some fun and interesting conversations that take place there as we try and track our way through some of this. Thanks as always to Rhys Michel for his work on zhuzhing the audio of this podcast to make it suitable to your ears. Until next time. <laughs>